Chapter 2, The Coming of the Holy Spirit When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound the multitude came together and and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak his own language and they were amazed and astonished saying are not all these who are speaking galileans and how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language parthians and medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia. Can I see e- say Egypt? Phrygia and Pamphylia. Egypt. And the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both, both Jews and what did I say? Proselytes. Proselytes. Yeah, okay. I'll do this part both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others mocking said, They are filled with new wine. Okay, now let's pray. Father, we just thank you for your word and for the power that you give us to do the things you call us to do. Uh, As we are all gathered together in our homes with our families, we pray that this would be a time that would both encourage us and challenge us, Lord. Uh, It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Good morning, church, uh, and welcome again uh, to our uh, version of Church Online. Uh, Let me just start off by saying uh, wherever you might be at, even whatever time it is uh, that you happen to be watching this, thank you so much for taking the time uh, to uh, gather together uh, and to worship and to hear from God's word. Uh, I'm so excited as uh, we uh, get to uh, jump into Acts chapter 2 together this morning and look at uh, Pentecost, the first 13 verses of uh, chapter 2. And and to do that uh, together uh, this morning, I I, want to start by talking about uh, defining moments, Uh, mainly because I I think we are in one of those now, that as we get into this third week of uh, quarantine and this idea of, of social distancing and having to work from home and only getting to be around our kids and you know our spouses and and some of us having to be alone. Uh, it, it, it's going on. It's dragging on. I should probably say right. Uh, it's dragging on longer than any of us really uh, wanted it to. And um, the whole question is, and the idea is, is how quickly can we get back to normal? How fast can things go back to the way that they were? And as this tends to go on a little bit longer, I'm, I'm, I, I truthfully am asking the question of 
what will normal look like after this? Will it be the normal we knew before? Or is this some kind of pivotal moment that things are going to be different? Just even maybe the way we see things will be different. Uh, I, I don't think this is a crazy idea, right? That, that we all have these defining moments in our lives. That times and places, things that were said to us, done to us, things that we have done or gone through, that we can look back on and we can say, that's when everything changed. My life was one way before and now it's different because of that. I mean, we, we have kind of the stock ones that we uh, all experience to one level or another. We have, we have things like graduations and birthdays, uh, marriage or, or having our, our kids. Um, even retirement can be one of those defining moments. But we also have individual ones. And, and these, these moments uh, are, are ones that transform us, that they shape us, just our, our behaviors, but also the way we see things, the way we see people and the world around us. Um, you know, for example, I, I recently, just the last couple of weeks, uh, had a, a, a defining moment in my own life. I, I think you could call it a defining moment of maybe even the quarantine. And that was... Um, a couple of weeks ago, uh, we were working in the office, and uh, Pastor Ed sent me a text and he said, "Hey, do you want lunch?" And I, and I said, "Yeah, if, if you're if you're bringing something back, that'd be great to have." And uh, you normally, I would ask someone, "What are you getting?" But I thought, "No, I'm I'm not going to ask him. I mean, he's offering, so I should just let him bring it." And uh, that was a mistake because he showed up with something that I swore I would never eat because it just. Quite frankly, I thought it would ruin food for me. And that was, um, he brought back a um, chicken sandwich with two donuts as uh, the buns. And, um, you know, uh, from KFC. And I, I don't know if you've seen this, but, it, but it's out right now. So if, if it sounds good to you and appealing, I, I guess you can go in, and try it out. But um, it, this was a defining moment for me. And it wasn't because I found out a little bit later that this was the second day in a row that he had eaten the sandwich. Um, I, I think when you find that out about your friend, you're like, okay, I think they've probably just given up on this whole, like, living life and surviving the quarantine thing. I think he's just packing it in at this point. No, it, it was a defining moment for me because I think that, I think that sandwich, uh, I, I can firmly say um, now, uh, not only ruined donuts and fried chicken for me, but I think it ruined sandwiches in general. I, I don't know if I'll ever see sandwiches again the same way or, or be able to eat sandwiches again because of just what that thing meant and how it tasted. And I think my arteries will never forgive me for it. But we all have these defining moments in our lives, right? Things that we can look back on and say, well, my life was one way before and, and, and now it's different. The way I see the world's different. I, I, I can notice a change. Um, Scripture is, is full of, of, of these types of uh, times in not just the life of Israel, but in humanity as a whole. And before we even get to Acts chapter 2 this morning, and that's what I want to start with. I, I, I want us to turn to, if you've got a Bible, you can turn there with me to Genesis chapter 11. And we're going to look here at a, a story that is one that once this happens, 
Nothing is ever the same way again. And Genesis chapter 11, verse 1, it's the story of the Tower of Babel. And, and, and there, we're told that the whole earth had one language and the same words. And if you skip down to verse 4, it says that the people, that, that they said to one another, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower, which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down, and there confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore its name was called Babel. Because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. What's interesting to find out when you study this passage a little bit more is that archaeologists have actually found towers like the Tower of Babel in Middle Eastern culture. They've actually found like over 30 of these in what became and what was the Babylonian Empire. And the way that these towers would work is they would set them up in the middle of the city. They actually, they weren't temples. They were next to the temples of worship. But they would set these towers up and they would build them up high as a reminder to the people of the, of the deity uh, that was over their city. Uh, but at the top of the very tower, they would have a staircase going up, and at the top of the tower it would be a room. And the, and the room would be um, pretty simple. It would, just, it would have a bed in it, and it would have a table where food could be placed. And the reason that they would do this is that they had this idea that, that the gods that they worshipped had certain needs. They had certain needs like you and I, that, that they would grow tired and that they would need rest or, or they would need food uh, to regain their strength. And, and so their idea was is that if we build this tower up to where God is and we provide a way to meet his needs then maybe he would bless us. That the tower was actually supposed to be this conduit through which if, if we meet the needs of the God, if we give him what he wants, he might come further down the tower and give us a blessing. So they actually had at the bottom of these towers a, a, a room set up so that they could receive the blessings of God. It was a way for them to enter into this interaction, a transaction with God in which they said, if we give you what you want and what you need, maybe you can also give us a way of what we want and what we need. Uh, what's more is they, they had actually taken God and, and humanized him. They said, you're actually probably just like us. You, you, you think the same way we do. You do the same types of things that we do. And, and what's more is if we can meet your needs, then we can keep you connected to us because that's how needs work, right? That, that if someone has something that they desperately rely on, if we are the source of that, then they can't get too far away from us. They have to keep coming back time and time again. So it wasn't just a way of them trying to bless the gods and get a blessing from them. It was a way of them saying, hey, you can't go anywhere. You've got to stay attached to us. It was a way of them literally putting God in a box, and in a room, and saying, you're going to be here whenever we need you because you can't find what you need out there apart from us. 
This was the whole problem. There's a lot of talk about, so what was the issue? Why, why does God come down and, and see what they're doing as a bad thing? Was it pride, all, all these different things? And, and, and really where, where he says there, look, this is just the beginning. What, what they're going to do beyond this, they won't be able to be stopped. God is actually saying, when he sees that this is what the, the children of man are, are, are doing and where they've gone, he says they've, they've crossed this threshold, Right? This threshold of seeing God as lower than he actually is. Of putting God on their level. Of saying, you know what? God's just like us. Like we think the same way as God. He thinks the same way as us. He needs the same type of things that we do. And God knows that like once you cross that threshold, it was the same threshold that was crossed in Eden. Of saying we can be like God. We can think the way that he thinks we can see good and evil apart from him. We actually don't need him. Better yet, we can control God. He says, once you cross that threshold, there's nothing holding you back. There's nothing holding you back from diminishing God, from saying we don't need God, from actually eventually killing God. They were attempting to gain back what they had lost in Eden. That was access, blessing, relationship. But they hadn't learned the lesson that Eden was meant to teach them. And so God sees us. He sees this threshold in, in, in their life, the sin being committed. And he knows that if he doesn't stop it there, it's going to result in the worst thing possible. And so what does he do? He comes down and he says, let's confuse their language. And so they speak different languages. It, 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 uh, according to Scripture, this is how we get different languages and cultures so all spread throughout our world. And it's because of this that Babel becomes a defining moment for all of humanity. This is how we understand our world. E e even today, it's the way that it is. We are separated. We are different. It is hard for us to understand one another. And often it's those differences that lead to disunity and strife and violence. But what's more is that we see God this way too. That we are separated from God. We have been cast out. He feels so far away from us. And that's what it's like. That's how it is. That is the way our world is now defined. That our world has been defined by this pivotal moment of sin in the life of all humanity, where we have tried to build ourselves up to God without God's help, thinking that in doing so, we can impress him and then we can entrap him and say, you need us as much as we need you. And so bless us and we'll bless you as well. Many of us, even still today, struggle with our relationship with God and not seeing it in transactional terms. Because why? This one moment, this one moment, all the way back in Genesis chapter 11, has defined so much of who we are and how we know ourselves, how we know God, how we know the world around us. So why am I telling you all this? Why, why are we starting all the way back in Genesis chapter 11 when we're supposed to be talking about Acts chapter 2 and Pentecost? It's because as much as we might try to redefine our lives. As much as we might try to change the way that things are, we're powerless to do so. And yet something comes along in Pentecost, in the giving of the Holy Spirit that shows us that the power of the Holy Spirit is one in which 
everything that we know gets redefined. Everything that we know gets changed. Just take, for instance, let's go to Acts chapter 2, verse 1. Just there in verse 1, it says, and when the day of Pentecost arrived, and we'll stop right there. That's all we need to hear to see what's going on. Because one of the things that Luke is telling us right off the bat as this amazing moment in the life of the apostles happens and just even begins. Luke is saying, you need to redefine your expectations. What's better is that you try to. You, you can try to reimagine what is possible. Like you can try to, in your own power, think of the greatest thing God can do. But guess what? You won't even get close. And so what you need to do, what you need is the power of the Holy Spirit to do that for you. That you need to redefine your expectations. Because he says there, when the day of Pentecost arrived, this word for arrived, it, it literally is translated as being fulfilled. It means that this day had been promised and it, and it had been longed for and, and it had been planned for and, and there were things that were leading up to it. And so the time had come for everything that God had been doing and pushing towards to be completed is what this word means. There's been an expectation that this would happen. There's been an expectation from God that this is where things were going. And, and we know that because Jesus had promised it. Jesus had promised it over and over again to his disciples. He had said that the Holy Spirit would come. He had promised them that it would actually be better for the Holy Spirit to come than if he stuck around. He said that they would actually need the Holy Spirit to do what he was calling them to do. And they even told them in Acts chapter 1, right, that we saw last week that he said, you need to stay here in Jerusalem until it happens. He didn't just promise them that it was going to happen. He didn't just say it was going to be great. It was going to be better. He actually said, this is where it'll happen. That there's an expectation that is given to the disciples, to the, the eventual apostles, to, as from God himself. Not their own, but God's. See, expectations aren't a bad thing in our life. They're, they're actually a really good thing. The, the only problem is, is that they need to be based out of reality. They, they need to be based out of something that can actually be followed through on. You, you, you learn this as you uh, counsel people getting ready uh, to be married. Um, expectations in marriage go hand in hand, and you can't rid people of, of what they expect from their marriage, what they expect from their spouse, but one of the things you learn really early on is that unsaid expectations and then unmet expectations will sink a marriage. Because we go into it thinking we know what it's going to be like because we've watched so, enough movies, we've read enough articles. Hey, we've even uh, maybe thumbed through a few books that talk about what it means to be married and that sort of thing. And so we know what to expect. We know what our spouse should do. And it only takes about like three weeks until you realize that's not the way any of this really happens. And what's really dangerous is, is when your spouse doesn't know that you're expecting those things from them. Because then you're not able to talk about it. You're not able to be realistic about how that's not who I am at all. And I don't know why you thought I, that would ever change about me. And it's not bad. You, you, you don't go into talking to people about getting married and say, hey, you just need to get rid of all expectations. You just... What you end up telling them is, is your expectations need to be, I don't know, real. They just need to actually be possible. 
That's what Pentecost is showing us is, is that when the Holy Spirit comes, that he redefines our expectations. That our expectations actually need to be based on the promises of God and not our demands. See, this was the mistake of Babel. They were trying to control God. They were telling God, this is what we need from you. This is what you should do. That we know exactly what we need to, to build this city. We know exactly what we need to live our lives the right way. And, and we have great plans for ourselves. And so you know what? If you would just, you know, I don't know, you know, work the way we want you to work. We have certain expectations. We have certain things we want. Give us money. Give us power. Give us time. Give us good crops. All, all those sorts of things that we say, you know, if you could just do that, that would be amazing. But the reason that Pentecost happens is to show that what God is up to and what he wants to do in our lives is so beyond our ability to imagine. This is, this is exactly what Ed was talking about last week, that we can't even begin to expect enough of God. We, we can't even imagine what God wants to do, not only in our lives, but through us and in our communities and in the world around us. That, that we see things around us and we say, hey, God, could you just do this thing? And he's like, I'm up to something so much bigger than that. And so Pentecost shows us that we have to be able to lay aside what we have come to expect and expect instead what he has promised because what he has promised is so much better that, that the Holy Spirit redefines the, uh, what we expect in our lives from God what we, what we expect him to be doing and to be bringing about. I think the interesting thing about crises in our life, crisis like what we're going through right now, is that crises can actually help us to do this, right? That it's in the times of trial, of real hardship, that we're finally able to let go of the superfluous things of our life and hold on to what's actually only really necessary, it's so common for us in, in the good times to, to demand that God works in the way that we want him to work. That we have certain expectations that we will be able to do certain things and that God will always bless them because it's stuff that he needs. So we demand of him to work through certain things like certain styles and ways of preaching, of music, of, of forms of community, of, of church buildings, of programs. They would say, hey, God, you know, I, we know that you need this stuff. And so we're going to do it. We're going to put it together. We're going to build it. And when we do that, it'll bless you. And so we're expecting you to bless us. But it's in the crisis of our life. It's in the trial and the fire of those times that tends to refine us, that tends to clarify what is really most important. That we're actually able to just want what he has promised us. To realize that his promises are what is necessary and, and to be able and, and willing to let go of the other expectations that we did have. Pentecost is that way for the disciples in that it was a crisis of the power of God coming down and refining their lives and 
burning away everything that wasn't necessary. All the expectations they had of what Jesus was going to be and what his kingdom would look like. And they were able to finally let that go and say, wow, this is actually what God wants to do. This is what's going on here. When their expectations by the power of the Holy Spirit coming into life were redefined in that way, it freed them up to finally do what God had wanted them to do. You see, the, the, the power of the Holy Spirit doesn't just redefine our expectations. It also redefines our purpose. In verses two, 2 through 4 there, Luke just goes on. He says, And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. We see the Holy Spirit coming down in this power, this amazing power, both wind and fire, these two incredible forces that are uncontrollable, right? I mean, even in our modern day, these are forces that we struggle with season after season. The winds blow and they destroy things and anything that's in their path can be leveled. It's the same way in fire that it's this all-consuming force. And so we see that the Holy Spirit has this power that we can't even imagine. Right? And you say, wow, what it would look like to have that in my life. What that would mean for me and how much better of a person I could be if I have that power. And yet that is not at all what is going on here in chapter 2. I, let me just say something that maybe might rub you the wrong way, but hang with me for a second. I'll, I'll, I'll explain what I mean. But what happens in that place with those 120 followers, what happens in that room is not for the people in that room. The reason I say that is because that's exactly what Jesus had promised them, right? Okay, so... Their expectations now are, are based on the promises of God. And what did Jesus promise them? Not just in Acts chapter 1, but even before that, he told them, you're going to be my witnesses. You have a new purpose in this life. And it is to speak and proclaim the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ and that he has come, he has died, and he has risen again. And in him, you can have New life. Jesus has promised them that. And so I say what happened in that room wasn't for the people in that room. Because also of what happened immediately after this. And that is, is that they go out and they witness to people. It, it, it's not like this, this great fire and power from the Holy Spirit falls and, and they sit around and say, wow, look at this revival. We've never felt this way. This is amazing. Hey, can somebody go out and get takeout? None of us want to leave this place. They all rush out. So much so that, that in the great throngs of people that were in Jerusalem at this time for this, uh, for this celebration of Pentecost. You see, Pentecost was a Jewish feast. It was one of the three feasts where people would actually travel from around the world. It was a pilgrimage feast for the Jewish people. And so much like Passover, Jerusalem is swollen with people. And in those great throngs and in that noisy bustle, something so amazing is happening, happening that the crowds say, what in the world is going on over there? And people gather around 
to see what God has done. The power that the Holy Spirit brings in the life of the apostles is the same power that he wants to bring in you and me, and it is one that sends them out to those who need to hear what God has done through Jesus Christ. You see, it's so easy to see this room and the tongues falling and say, wow, what power the apostles had, and it would be amazing to be given that power as well, but the power wasn't for them. It was for the people that needed to hear him. It wasn't for the sake of the 120. It was for the sake of the thousands outside. It's so common in our lives to see the Holy Spirit and what he brings as being for our benefit. But through his power, our purpose is redefined from one of hoarding to one of sharing. Instead of having to build ourselves up to heaven, instead of having to accumulate as much as we can to possibly make, to make sure that our own towers reach the heights that they need to, to come into contact with God. Instead, he comes down. Instead of having to, to gather in one place and that thinking that we are stronger in numbers, and that we're only good if we're together and we're secure and we're separated from others. Instead, the power of the Holy Spirit changes our purpose to share what has been given to us, to not hang on to it, and so he sends us out. The Holy Spirit's power is able to redefine what we think is possible in our life because we're, our life is now based on the promises of God. And he redefines our purpose. And he does both of these things because I, uh, of this last point that I want to talk to you about this morning. And this is, like, this is where I think it just gets so good. Uh, we see what the Holy Spirit is doing, what God is doing, and, and what he is able to do. Because he redefines our, our, our expectations and he redefines our purpose so that he can redefine our past. See, the, the reason we, we brought up Babel is because it really does feel like, it seems like God is undoing Babel. The, the, everything that, that happened then is being undone. It's, it's, almost like, it's almost like that never happened, and yet we get to this place now at the end of these 13 verses, and we find, well, that's not what God is doing at all. God isn't working to undo what has been done. God is actually working to redeem it. As a pastor, it doesn't take you very long um, in meeting with people and, and talking to them. Um, not just from your conversations, but actually your own personal experience quite often to, to realize that many people, I think actually most people, are quietly dying in a, a secret tomb of shame in their life. And that so many people are walking around day to day with seemingly okay, uh, putting on a brave face, and, and yet inwardly they are ashamed of poor financial situations that they find themselves in of out-of-control spending and debt that they've accumulated, and, and they see themselves as failures, of, uh, as not good stewards. Uh, ashamed of what they've done and who they've become. There are others who are ashamed about sexual sin in their life and in their past. And, 
And what you realize is that they, they often carry this shame into re- other relationships, new relationships, and it ends up poisoning those relationships and, and their view of themselves and their spouse. There are so many of us walking around, even today, ashamed of secret addictions that we're worried if they were found out, if they were brought to light, what people would think of us, what we might lose. And, and so these addictions are driven further and broader than we ever imagined because we bury them deeper and deeper. Uh, Craig Rochelle is a pastor and he says that there are three steps to how shame works in our lives. Uh, he, he says the first step is, is that we experience an intensely painful event, a, a defining pivotal moment in our life, one that we can look back on. Maybe we don't even know it happened and, and yet maybe other people are able to spot. The Holy Spirit definitely knows and says, you know, hey, nothing's ever been the same since. The way you see yourself, the way you see others, the world around you, your behaviors, your thoughts. We experience this intensely painful event in our lives, and then the second step is that we believe our failure and our pain is who we are. That it's not something that's been done to us or said to us or even something that we did, but it is actually who we are. And so because of that, we see ourselves in this way and we experience the shame and it's this shame that leads to the third and final step in which it traps us into feeling we can never recover. What's more is that we get to a place that we feel like we don't deserve to recover. That we really aren't worth it. It's shame like this that keeps us from knowing God. It keeps us from knowing God because our life is controlled by this defining moment. This pitiful thing that we did or that was done to us, that was said to us or by us. And the thing is, is that when our life is defined by something like past shame that we live with each and every day and we re-incriminate ourselves day after day, beating ourselves down and saying, you're not worth anything. You'll never be beyond this. This is who you are. You're a hypocrite. You're a fake. What that means is that we can't live for God because we're living based on something else. There's something else that defines everything about us. And he's the only one that's supposed to. And so we can't live for him no matter how much we might want to. And this is why Pentecost is so great. This is where the Holy Spirit in this day, this fulfillment of this promise and this repurposing of our lives is so incredible. Because notice, notice that at the end of this, it doesn't say, and they all spoke one language and they all understood each other that way. And it was as if Babel never happened. It's not what happens. It actually, it actually says, it says, no, they, they, actually, they actually still were speaking different languages. And all were amazed, it says there in verse 12, and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? That actually, commentaries talk about how they were talking. The, the apostles were, were talking in the actual dialects of the people. Uh, not, not, just, not just their language, but, but the way they spoke. They, they were saying things like, y'all, and you betcha, and all that kind of stuff. 
That, that actually God had, had taken the effects of Babel and he had turned them around. It wasn't that he undid them. He was redeeming them. That he was actually talking to people in, in ways that they understood. And this wasn't, don't mistake this, this wasn't that the, the apostles, the, the, the people that the tongues fell on, that all of a sudden the, like, they were speaking just one language, their language, and then people could hear them. No, God had done this. So that those who needed to hear could hear, and not just hear in their own language, but hear in the way that they talk, hear in the way that they understood the, the most intimately. We would like to think that when God comes in, it's like the thing in our past, the shame that we hold, that moment, that defining event in our lives never happened. That he just wa washes it away and he says, just act like it never existed. That part of you is, is gone. We've cleaned it up. Everything starts now. But that's not what God does. Instead, what God does is he recognizes what has happened. He points it out. He says, yeah, this took place. And what he says is, is that we need to do the same. We need to say it happened. I, I don't know if there's a greater example in Scripture uh, than, than the example of, of King David, who in the midst of following God and, and, and seemingly being this great champion of the faith and what it means to chase after God's own heart, uh, David has this lapse where, where he commits adultery and, and, and then to try to cover it up, he actually kills Bathsheba's husband. And, and, and when, when David is finally confronted with his sin, instead of getting to a place where, where, where David tries to, to, tries to act like it didn't happen, he actually does the opposite. It says there in Psalm 51, verses 1 and 2, he says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to the, your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Going on to verse 10, he says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and, not your holy, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. David wasn't innocent, but he was honest about what had happened. And God was honest about what had happened. But, but in his honesty, he was, able, he was able to bring his sin, his, his shame, his shortcomings out into the light and, and to call it what it is and to see it for what it really was. And to see God who, for who he really is, that he was a God that could redeem and restore him. So here at Pentecost, so just like with Babel, God takes what has been done, that the sin has been committed and it's been in, intended to destroy. And he flips it around and he uses it for life. God wants you in your life to know true freedom. And a lot of times we, we like to think that freedom would mean is that, that the, the things in our past that we think make us unworthy. That the reasons why we can't expect what God has promised us or be what he has called us to be. We, we think it would be better if those things were just kind of swept under the rug. 
that they were like, yeah, they don't, they didn't happen. Let's just, let's just not even, not even act like it was there. But that's not real freedom. Because it means that it still has power over you. You still fear it. You, 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 you still, you still just kind of have to ignore it. And if it, if it were to come back somehow, you, you wouldn't know how to handle it. No, I, actually what real freedom means is exactly what God offers us. What he shows us he, he does here at Pentecost. And that he calls these things, these, these defining moments in our lives, he calls them out. He puts them in front of us so that we can see them clearly, so that they aren't built up into this thing that they, they really aren't, that, that we, we see that, that because of, of what he has done and through the power of his Holy Spirit, that, that they are not this towering, unconquerable force in our lives, that they're actually pretty insignificant and that they're just one moment, one time, and they do not define us. They aren't who we are. And so he says, size it up, show it for what it is, and then actually use it. Use it as a witness for what God can do. Better yet, use it as a witness for what it really is. And make sure that it doesn't do the same to other people. I... I, I'm so amazed at the story of Pentecost and the power of the Holy Spirit to not just simply undo the sin in our life, but to redeem it and use it for God's purposes. Because from our viewpoint, there are relationships that are broken and beyond mending. And we look at them and we say, I guess it was just wasted. That there are times, times like now where, where it seems like everything is on hold and, and, and nothing uh, of any significance is going on and it, and it seems like a waste and, and we're wondering when can we get back to a place that, that something is actually happening, that God is actually able to use me. That we, we have these broken places in our lives and we, we say they'll just never be right again. That, 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 I, I, I guess that just needs to be thrown out. We'll, we'll have to just, hey, can we, can we act like that never happened? That we see them as just a, a, a waste. That, that, that everything that came before doesn't matter. That it'd be better if it didn't matter. But that's not what God sees. It's not what he sees because he has the power to redefine your past. He has the power to redeem it. He has the power to fix and heal what you think is broken, what you think is wasted. And he's promised to do just that so that you can do what he has made you to do. He has promised to give you a purpose. And he wants to use your redeemed past. Because what was broken is now healed. And just like any bone that is broken, when it is healed, that place of the break becomes stronger and unbreakable. Wherever you are this morning, I know that there are far too many of us that are walking around with shame in our life, 
that is defining us, that is holding us down, that is telling us that we cannot expect the promises of God because of what has happened in the past, that we, we cannot be doing what he tells us to do, that the purpose of our life is something lesser, that we have to just settle that this is the way it is. This is how our world works now. The amazing thing is this morning, I want you to know that the power of the Holy Spirit wants to redeem every part of who you are, not just simply wash it away, not act like it never happened, but to say it did happen. But because of the power and the grace of Jesus Christ, it can be used now for his good, for his glory. And you can too. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that our ways are not your ways. Our thoughts aren't your thoughts. That the way you see the world is not the way that we see the world. Lord, would you show us this morning, wherever we are, Lord, would your spirit speak to us? Would we have our own moment of Pentecost where everything about who we are is redefined by your power Lord, help us to bank on and live our lives out of your promise. But even more than that, Lord, if there is shame that is holding any of us down, if any of us have given into the lie that we have wasted much of our life and we can never have that back. Lord, this morning I pray for each person that is in that place. Help them to see by the power of your Holy Spirit what it means to be redeemed and what it means to be able to live our entire life, past, present, and future, only for your glory. Lord, thank you so much for the hope that we have in Jesus Christ and in the story of Pentecost and the coming of your Holy Spirit. Would you give us that power in our own lives today? It's in your name we pray. Amen.